Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode of the GabFest contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political GabFest for September 24th, 2020. Not even cold in the ground edition. I am David Plotz in Washington, D.C., staring into my closet, which I feel is like a metaphor for how the world feels these days. Staring into a closet. I am joined from New Haven, from her home in New Haven, Connecticut, by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily Bazelon. Hello, David Platz. I'm glad we're going by these long formal names this morning. That seems important to clarify uh, our identities utterly. Just, just to maintain some sh- shred of dignity in this, these undignified times. Uh, a man who always maintains more than a shred of dig- dignity is John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes, who is somewhere. Where are you, John? Hello, John. Hi, I'm in D.C., where I have to quarantine oh. for a million years before the debate. Oh. Wow, that's a long quarantine. A yeah. million years? They don't yeah. believe in just nice little negative COVID tests, apparently, huh? Well, you've got to quarantine before you can take the test. Um, but when you're Thanks. out of quarantine, let's let's go for a walk again. Yeah, I, I don't, on, anyway, we can figure that out. Never. We can talk. We'll that discuss. will be never. On today's GabFest, the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the obscene haste to fill her seat with a conservative justice and how that may affect the election, which the president says uh, he cannot lose. Then the first presidential debate is next week. How is it shaping up? Will it matter? Where does it uh, stand in the whole uh, broad picture of this campaign? Then 200,000 Americans are dead. The virus rages across the country, and there is an active sabotage campaign within the government to discredit its own scientists and its own scientific advice. Oif, I don't know. There's I, there's a question at the end of that, but I don't know what it is. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. What a, man, what a terrible week. This, this has really oh it's been what? such a week. Oh, my God. Totally agree. Anxiety-provoking, worrisome. I feel so worried. Yeah. So it's been less than a week since the death of Justice Ginsburg, and all the monstrousness that you might have expected to happen has, in fact, happened. Senate Republicans, reversing their extremely sincere and heartfelt position of 2016, have announced that they will vote and approve the president's judicial nominee, justice nominee, no matter who it is. They have the numbers. The president will undoubtedly give them a nominee who will be guaranteed to be an extremely conservative vote. Uh, 
locking in a six to three conservative majority for perhaps decades to come. Um, what is happening now is is power politics in its basest form. We'll get into that. But Emily, we did not get a chance to talk about Justice Ginsburg um, right after her death. We we had just finished doing a show before that happened. Just talk a little bit about why she was such an icon, why she became such a a figure of of power and influence and celebrity for those on the left. Justice Ginsburg was incredibly committed to equal rights. You know, first for women as a litigator in the 1970s when there were still laws on the books that, for example, like favored the husband as the executor of an estate because men were supposed to have more experience administering trusts and estates. Um, That was a law she challenged in the early 70s at the Supreme Court. She cared about equality for its own sake. She saw it as key to freedom. And it was a pretty radical vision. It extends to LGBTQ people in the last term. It just sort of sees that if people are put into boxes, if you assume that they have a certain set of capabilities, like that is going to be a prison, no matter how much you talk about it as like for their own good or protecting them or putting them on a pedestal. And all of that she was a part of before she got to the Supreme Court. But on the Supreme Court, she has written some incredibly important dissents, like in Shelby County versus Holder, um, the very wrong-minded decision that the conservatives made in 2013 that cut back on the protections of the Voting Rights Act. She had this great line in that case, which I think encapsulates like one of her strengths as a justice, which was to frame issues. She said that ending the role of the Justice Department in preventing local officials from doing things like closing polling places for no reason, she compared that to taking away your umbrella because you're not getting wet. You know, I think because late in her life, she also became the notorious RBG, this kind of iconic character. She brought to life the court for lots and lots of people across the country for whom it seems kind of remote and abstract. And that was such an unlikely development. I mean, she was someone who in person was kind of awkward and reserved. Whenever I talked to her, I cautioned myself so much not to interrupt her. You know, her clerks famously had this one Mississippi to Mississippi rule for making sure not to just jump in because she had these funny pauses in her conversation. She had all these different facets and this kind of um, extra lease on life, as one of her clerks said to me, because of all this like celebrity attention at the end of her life. And now we have this like Greek tragedy ending to this play, which was that she did not step down when Obama was president in his second term before Republicans retook the Senate in 2014. She refused to do that. And we can talk about that. Um, I did a lot of reporting about why. And then, you know, Hillary Clinton lost the election and Ginsburg's idea that she would be chosen by the first, her successor would be chosen by the first female president did not come to pass. And she almost gutted it out through Trump's first term. But she died because you don't get to control when cancer kills you. And now the country is in a position where so much of her life's work could be unraveled by the choice of this next deeply conservative justice. So... John, there's so many facets to this story, and there's so many implications, but I, we can talk on all of it, about all of them, or a lot of them. I want to start with the fact that, that one of the messages of this strange thing that Mitch McConnell is doing is that you, it is now, like, basically, you can't believe a word that senators say. 
Is that the lesson? Is that that when we tell you something, like just don't even believe it? It holds true till the till sundown. That right. uh, we are <laughs> saying it for pure expediency. We don't. There is no principle that we are holding to, and um, you know you can check back with us tomorrow, and the answer will be purple. Right. Power. Power rules. Power. The ends justify the means. Um, so. Yeah, we got to fight through the thicket of of the first response from a lot of people who will be like, oh, well, that's always the way it is. You know, of course, you're just waking up to the reality of the world. Um, and there's a sliver of that. Um, politicians have always worked in their in their best, you know, in their personal interests. But the entire experiment was designed around recognizing that fact and building a whole bunch of barriers to keep that uh, from being the only governing fact. Because if it is the only governing fact, then we're, you know, first we'll sell water uh, and then we'll sell our blood because it'll be total anarchy and and mayhem. So what we're seeing is the escalation of an ends justify the means. And and in the Senate in particular, and I and and for the emotional thrust of these remarks, I, I uh, draw a part of them from um, a book called... Um, uh, the Long Game by Mitch McConnell, <laughs> which he wrote when he was in the minority, um, which is the Senate. And, you know, they like to think of themselves as the world's great deliberative body. Deliberation and the way in which the Senate supposedly does it is based on norms, agreements, um, the idea that um, you don't clock your opponent in debate on one day because the next day you may be working with them. And and Mitch McConnell in his books writes about this mostly with respect to legislation, which is that when you when you ram things through the Senate without any support from the minority, you create brittle legislation and you create the conditions for a minority that wants to act out because they want revenge and you basically turn the institution into an eye for an eye. That's essentially what we have here. Now, Republicans will say, well, you know, Harry Reid started it first. And they're not, you know, they're not wrong. But then the Democrats would say, well, but Harry Reid had to get rid of the filibuster on non-Supreme Court uh, nominations because Mitch McConnell was so, was blocking everything that the Obama um, administration put forward. And then you're back to the, you know, Thomas hearings and then Bork and so on. The point is that that these rules and norms exist because people maintain them when it's against their self-interest to do so, right? Or at least you don't start from a pure power position. So I guess this is a super long answer in saying that, that I mean, there's nothing that prohibits McConnell from doing what he's doing this time. The, the real leap he took was with Garland, denying him even a hearing, more so than what's happening right now, I think. Um, but but it's, isn't it it's, the combination, John? Yes, I was It's just, like you can have one or the other, yeah, right? Yeah, like, that's, that's what I keep thinking. Right. I mean, I realize they had the votes in the Senate both times, and that's the power decides part. But like, really, it's that either they got to block the Garland nomination for this made up principle of you don't pick a Supreme Court justice in the last year of the presidency, or you get to have this nomination now. It's not both. Yes, that was my next sentence, <laughs> which is that these things combined, what's so powerful here is that this is Calvin Ball. Um, or if any of you have seen Stripes, this is John Candy explaining why um, so somebody has to make his bed. You know, if this was in Italy, I'd make your bed. Um, it's making up the rules as you go along. Um, and and Mitch McConnell is not the the greatest offender. I mean, the, Lindsey Graham, who basically, you know, uh, who said multiple times, if a Republican president has an opening in the final year of their presidency, they shouldn't be, uh, that person shouldn't be installed in the Supreme Court. He just basically bailed on that. Uh, Roy Blunt did. 
Grassley did. Lots of Republican senators have bailed on this. And it's that combination. And again, these are people who say things with real passion in their voice. And why is that important? It's because when you put your political self-interest on the line and speak with passion, you send a signal to voters, hey, this is really important. Hey, this is a, a moment of national importance that we should all sit up and pay attention to. When you cast all that aside, then why pay attention to anything going forward that anybody gets exercised about because it all, all can change tomorrow? So, Emily, it is not at all clear to me. It is clear to me that the the installation of a Justice Amy Coney Barrett or Barbara Lagoa uh, would make the Supreme Court more conservative and would have all kinds of baleful impacts down the line. Um, that is undoubtedly true. It is not clear to me that the nomination and approval of such a justice before Election Day benefits one particular party in this election. Yeah, the long game is really clear. This is going to really change the trajectory of the Supreme Court. Having a very solid six justice majority is really different from almost five, which is what we have now with Chief Justice John Roberts able to exercise some serious leverage um, with a few swing votes. You know, let's not make the mistake of calling Roberts a moderate, which I keep hearing over and over and really grates on me. He's not. He's a conservative, but he's not willing to go so far, quite as far as everyone else. He cares. I mean, that's the rest of his conservative majority. He cares about the legacy of the court. It has its name on it. That matters in a few cases. I don't think that's going to matter to the next justice. The short term, I agree with you. I mean, part of me thinks, so let's like think about this. You know, in the short term, there's rewarding conservative evangelicals in particular for their loyalty to President Trump, giving them what they want. That could really satisfy them, bring them out in larger numbers in November, give them something to feel really proud about their votes. On the other hand, it'll be kind of done unless they leave the vote to the lame duck session. And you have on the other side, a Democratic base, which is just feeling savagely betrayed and upset and energized. And so I also wonder, I mean, I sort of think like, if you could just do it for the short term politics, first of all, Trump should pick Barbara Lagoa since she's a Cuban American from Florida, and he needs Florida. And also, maybe they should do the process the hearings if they're going to have them and then hold out the vote until after the November 3rd election so that that prize still remains there to galvanize their voters. On the other hand, President Trump has made it clear that he wants nine justices, including three he has appointed to be there in case the Supreme Court decides the election. He was very uh, blunt about that. It's um, saying the quiet part out loud. Emily, do you think it's certain that this Supreme Court, who the fuck knows? Why am I even talking about it? Who, that this Supreme Court, when presented with a claim of election fraud or a, a, a claim that the, the election has been tampered with by the president, that they would necessarily act in a partisan fashion? I mean, is it is it so certain that, that Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch and John Roberts are that in the tank for Republican politics that they're going to pick a side? I, it is not... 100% clear to me that, that they would. I mean, I desperately hope you're right. I think it depends how the claims presented to them. Bush versus Gore is not a particularly reassuring precedent. But 
I think those nine people, those eight people whose identities we know, and one person who doesn't even know she will be in that seat, that is a crazy idea. They will do a lot to try not to divide on party lines on this vote, right? Because they will know how terribly damaging that will be for the country. So there's that. And this is the this is all the ricochet effects of your first question, David, which is one, one's baseline assumption about people sticking to kind of the basic guidelines and guardrails of their jobs are now is all totally up in the air because everything is about power and nothing you've said before matters. Um, so that so that makes you suspicious of everything. Um, and secondly, the court shouldn't be in the position of having to do what Emily says, which is right, which is potentially make decisions, having to keep things in mind, like how will this decision be received by a country whose other two institutions, Congress and the presidency, have so inflamed things that we have to make sure we pitch our decision into the public knowing that it's a cauldron and that we don't, you know, we're worried that whatever decision we decide will inflame that cauldron. I mean, it's a, it's a really, we are in a really terrible state of minority rule in this country yes. where we have a president who is elected with the minority of the popular vote, a Senate which is controlled by senators representing a min, you know a minority of the country and who I think believe collectively have a minority of the vote if you add up how they performed and a supreme court which has a a locked in majority of justices appointed by presidents who received a minority of the vote and who consistently represent positions which are held by a minority of the people and there is no structural way to change this uh it is a it's a it's an extremely sad and bad and dangerous situation for the country to be in and the only way that that the democrats get to sort of even vaguely fight on an even field is by only overwhelmingly winning elections which allows them to narrowly win elections so it's a it's a very bad situation that we're in well, I mean, there's not. Yeah, I mean, but you've named the thing that can correct that situation, which is if the Democrats take control of the Senate and win the presidency and increase the number of seats in the House, you could have a situation where they they have all three. Um, so yeah, it's but not they have all three in this temporary state. And unless they sure. then engage in some serious radical revision, ball. revision of what what happens, like by creating a bunch of new states, sure. by adding justices to the Supreme Court, by ending judicial review. Yeah, uh, there the, this situation will will recur because of how the country is structured, because of the the overweight of rural states and of and and the in the permanent position on the Supreme Court, where you once you get on there, you're there forever. Yeah. So it's it it is not it can't get changed unless Democrats act in a they have to win the election overwhelmingly and have that majority everywhere, and b they have to be willing to undertake some extremely risky and probably unpopular changes to how the country is structured. Right, Emily? I actually think there's some incremental changes in there. Like, I mean, you talked about ending judicial review. That's the idea that the court would no longer get to decide the final word on interpreting the Constitution. You could do something in the middle, like saying that you need a supermajority to strike down an act of Congress or limiting its jurisdiction in certain kinds of cases. So just to be clear, I feel like there are more tools in the toolbox for mitigating the influence of a court that truly, truly lurches to the right 
There's also ideas out there for, obviously, we know Supreme Court justices, federal judges have life tenure, but they don't have necessarily a right to life tenure on the Supreme Court. So there are ideas out there for 18-year terms where you would rotate people off the Supreme Court onto the appeals courts, etc. Anyway. John, what were you going to say? Well, I was just going to say, I wonder if there's one more beat uh, to, to take on the politics of this, because um, if they if the president gets somebody on the court before the election, I wonder if some number of voters will might think, you know, we've squeezed the lemon as much as possible. We got three people on the court. Uh, we have um, uh, concerns about this president. You know, in other words, they don't turn out because they've been rewarded with three seats on the court. They kind of think, boy, we've gotten a lot. There are parts of this president we don't like, so maybe maybe they don't turn out. But I think one thing that so that's sort of highly speculative. The other thing, though, of course, is that the president's pick and how he frames it and how it's talked about will be used to bait um, both Biden and Democrats from now until until the election in the hopes that by overreacting um, that they uh, galvanize Republican voters and turn voters away from uh, from Biden, which has been the strategy before there was even a Supreme Court to con- uh, pick to consider, but will now be, and we see it on the Catholic question, um, will now be this, the strategy that goes along with this pick from now until Election Day. Yeah, I can totally see some group of people saying, okay, we've got a supermajority on the Supreme Court. We're going to get Roe v. Wade is going to go. There is not a likely other justice that we need to get done right now. And why do we need this Michigas anymore? (laughs) Like what? I don't think I don't think that if you are a a Christian conservative in this country that you find the president's behavior particularly appealing or the way he acts particularly appealing or or that you that he represents the values and in the way he moves through the world, he represents the values that you cherish. I feel like you guys are discounting the tribal loyalty of how people's partisan polarized preferences actually play out. I mean, maybe there's some people on the margin like that. Not, not, I'm not, we're talking that, but yes, I hear you. I hit. Yeah. We're talking just about the marginal voter. I mean, the person who's already signed up and is a hundred percent for Donald Trump was there before Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. I mean, they were on and with him and that's, I'm just thinking about the marginal voter whose behavior would have been changed by this one way or the other. So they're necessarily in a category of people who's not already tribally war painted up for, for Donald Trump. And so it's that voter or, or is he going to bring more people on by having named somebody and seated them who then go to the polls or are those people uh, liable to say, great, got a third. I'm either not going to the polls or I'm voting for Biden or whatever. I mean, there may the kind of voter I'm talking about, there may be only, you know, 14 of them. Yeah, that's my fear. I also just I am so troubled by President Trump's statements that he is not just quickly saying, yes, of course, I will accept the results of the election and agree to a peaceable transfer of power. And this statement that he made this week, um, you know, they're all he's like exaggerating the problems with balloting. He seems to be referring to mail-in balloting, though he didn't even say that. And then he said, like, there won't be a transfer. There'll be a continuation if we get rid of all these ballots. I mean, that is not okay for, for any leader of a democracy to say out loud. And the idea that the only reaction, at least so far, among Republicans in Washington is Mitt Romney making a lone statement. Like, this is the mistake the Republicans make over and over again. President Trump is a bully. You don't stand up to a bully one by one. That just means that you become the target of the bully. You have to do it in a consensus fashion altogether that you're not accepting this norm. And without that you're not accepting this breaking of this norm, I should say. 
And without that, like that in itself creates a danger for the country. President Trump may be blustering, but his attorney general, Bill Barr, he seems really serious about using the powers of the Justice Department to potentially undermine the integrity of the election. And Everybody needs to be out there right now making it clear that, like, we all agree we like living in a democracy. That is foundational. That is, like, the value that we're not going to fight over. We're going to proceed from that premise. And I just don't feel that in a strong enough way right now. And it's really, really upsetting. It's it's terrifying. I can't even look at it face face to face. I cannot look it clearly in the eye because it's so scary. I agree with you, Emily. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it... Um it's it's um there's gasoline on the floor and the president is throwing more on the floor and that's just completely it's 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 in we're in a it's we're in a really new place and the distorting effect like the sowing of distrust on both sides like things go wrong in elections elections are not perfect everybody doesn't get to vote and we accept on the margins some problems like how are we going to do that this time there everyone is so aroused to be worried about the results and about cheating and fraud i just am really worried about that part I, of it i i don't i mean i assume this is not happening but God, I hope that there are some, the senators who still have social capital with each other, the senators who still talk to each other, that, that, you know, Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell probably still have a relationship, that there is some conversation that, that the boobahs are having just where they are trying to say, okay, like, let's figure out how we can lower the temperature on this and ensure that this system persists and not in a, not in a kind of end of the Roman Republic kind of way. I mean, where's the evidence that these like wise men are saving us? I just don't see it. Like no, there are fewer I, no of evidence. them. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, mean, I, but I think they talk the themselves right. It seems like every time they talk themselves into the, the idea that like this is just a small erosion, it doesn't really matter, which is like that's how democracies end. Slate plus members. You get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts, and you've been supporting Slate's journalism, and Slate has been doing really important work at a time, obviously, of national tumult and national crisis, and we appreciate your membership, and it's allowed us to continue doing what we do and allow Slate to expand what, what they're doing. So we encourage you to become a member at slate.com slash plus today's Slate Plus bonus segment. We're going to actually do the reverse of what we just did. We're going to talk about how we are trying to find calm and solace or solace, either solace or solace in this very, very bad period, this very troubling and unsettling time. This episode of The Gap Fest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frames that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. 
It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The first of three presidential debates is on Tuesday night. There will also be one vice presidential debate. The first debate is going to be moderated by Chris Wallace of Fox, who's a pretty good moderator. The topics, which Wallace has already named, include the Trump and Biden records, the Supreme Court, the pandemic, the economy, race and violence in our cities, his characterization, not mine, and the integrity of the election. John, we're going to get to your long view on debates in a moment. But Emily, the president has spent much of the summer making sport of Joe Biden's supposed mental infirmities and his age. So you'd think it would be pretty easy for Biden to win this debate. But I, my own theory, which I want you to discount or, or validate, is that this is actually a very risky moment for Biden because, in fact, he can he can do he's unlikely to get any sort of knockout of Trump. There's Trump is unknockoutable. He's too chaotic to be knocked out, but he could severely damage himself with a significant gaffe or some kind of senior moment. Whereas Trump is unlikely to hurt himself since everyone assumes that he's going to be batty anyway. Yeah, I mean Trump gave did Biden a favor by setting the bar so low and. I assume Biden will clear it. But I think you're right that he has more to lose. When I was watching Trump's town hall, I just thought to myself, like, so first of all, lying is a really good tactic in that format because it's really hard for anyone to call you out. I mean, George Stephanopoulos tried in the town hall. I think it's super unlikely that Chris Wallace is going to be that aggressive. And I mean aggressive as a compliment. And then I think the other thing is just the filibustering. Like, Trump just, like, talks and, I mean, I guess there'll be time limits, but, like, it doesn't really make any sense. You have all this, like, chaff. It's kind of hard to even follow and know how to respond. So Biden just needs to stay really on message. And I think he needs to make it clear that he's not going to, like, he needs to be a strong presence on that stage. Like, he needs to be in his persona where he's, like, I'm not taking any shit from you. I'm not, right? Like, I'm, he has those moments of outrage, and they seem sincere, and I actually think they're helpful to him. I mean, it's a sort of classic masculine move to make, and I, like, don't want to, 
normally I wouldn't be so excited about it, but I feel like in this context that he needs to be really like standing on his own two feet, firmly present, um, unwilling to back down, but also totally coherent. John, stop looming behind Emily like that. Stop it. (laughs) Get back back to your seat. Even Uh, on Zoom, somehow you're trying to force and intimidate me. No, you're not doing anything. So I, um, you know, obviously I have a thousand uh, thoughts ping-ponging off of the, w- the walls here. I mean, w- the question we should talk about is, right, whether debates are, like, what they should be as they are and then whether they're of any use at all. I mean, so, because we're debating what, like, as a political matter in, uh, you know, what the outcome will be for both candidates, but they're really a mess. I mean, uh, Jill Lepore wrote a piece in 2016 reminding me of a Walter Cronkite quote that the debates are a part of an unconscionable fraud that our political campaigns have become because they're not debates, they're joint appearances. The, the, the fact-checking point that Emily made is a really, really important point, and it's really, really interesting. I think Chris Wallace is perhaps the best in the business at what he does as a moderator. I mean, sorry, as a Sunday show host, and I say that as a uh, former one. I think he's I think he's really good. I think he fact-checks and stays on his guests um, about as much as you possibly can, and that's not so easy. The question is in a debate, and there's a lot of t- call for moderators to fact-check the candidates. Well, Donald Trump would love nothing more than a moderator who is constantly on him and fact-checking. I mean, I think even George, who did a, a very thorough and good job in that town hall, couldn't fact check all of the things that needed fact checking or else it would just be a monologue by George Stephanopoulos and the president would be delighted to to treat the moderator as a foil. And in that case, it doesn't become a debate. It becomes a sort of a weird reality show. So um, so fact checking on the part of the moderator is a really delicate thing. So the people who run the debates say, well, it's really not the moderator's job, it's the opponent's job. Okay, well, that's silly, because all you do is you just load up your opponent with a series of charges that they can't rebut. And if they don't rebut them, then they go unanswered and the, and the charge sticks, or they try to rebut them, and then they never have a chance to say what they're, they want to say. So there is a fundamental flaw at the heart of this. And I think that I can, the only way it can be solved is if everybody takes it upon themselves to be to not lapse into what we have lapsed into, which is like, oh, well, who's surprised that somebody's being a hypocrite or who's surprised that they're not telling the truth? Well, we should be surprised and enraged. So (laughs) I'll stop talking. Actually, but John, now we have to do the PSA, which you do every time I ever say the word debate. I asked you this question. Remind us in what way, if at all, debates tend to matter in how people vote and how people poll uh, they, you know, political scientists basically tell us they don't matter at all. But what I wonder about with debates is like, are debates like, um, like worry, which is to say when you're worried about something and someone says, oh, it'll all be fine. And it probably will all be fine. But one of the reasons it'll all be fine is because you really worried and dealt with whatever was troubling you that made things turn out okay in the end. So with debates, there is so much focus on them. And in the end, the political scientists say that the race kind of rumbles back to where it was before the debates. And we've seen that certainly with the conventions. On the other hand, in 20, uh, six, 2012, when Barack Obama was seen to have done terribly after the first debate and the polls changed both in terms of the horse race and on the individual attributes, Romney was uh, much improved after the first debate when he was seen to have won not just against Obama, but all on things like leadership and handling a crisis and all that. 
But then Obama bounced back in the second one. In the end, the polls sort of returned to where they were beforehand. So would that have been the natural state of things? Or was that the state of things because Barack Obama returned to form in the second and third debates after freaking out and really working very hard to correct the errors of the first one? I guess I'm I'm not certain that they don't matter at all. Uh, but I do think that basically, given the rules of the way people behave and the way people react, that if they do those things, if they fix the perceived problems after a debate or something, then everything basically doesn't matter and it reverts back to where things were um, before the debates happen. I mean, is it, Emily, is there anything that Trump could do or that, that Biden could evoke in Trump that you think would actually hurt Trump? I mean, we have a president who's called our troops the war dead losers and he's allowed bounties on American soldiers. He's sexually assaulted. Or he's been accused, credibly accused of sexually assaulting a, a shocking number of women. He said appalling things about the dead and the living. He's praised Nazis, celebrated Confederates. Like, is there anything? And, and his, you know, his manner is so kind of violent and confusing and chaotic so is there literally anything that Biden could get out of Trump that would be valuable to Biden as a candidate? I mean, some admission of ignorance or um, aggression that hasn't been on the record. There'll be people who watch clips from this debate who don't follow all those ups and downs and may catch a piece of this. And I think now I'm going to adopt the position you guys were taking earlier, those marginal persuadable voters. There are a few of them out there. Some of them live in swing states. Maybe they've kind of had Cindy enough. in Ohio. I'll Cindy. be Cindy. I'm Cindy <laughs> in Ohio. Okay. Oh, oh, oh don't Here put I her am. in Ohio. Oh. Put her in like Florida or Wisconsin. Oh, yeah. Or... Cindy in Florida. In Arizona. Cindy McCain in Arizona. Sure. Cindy Ohio McCain ain't what it is used like to be. on the radio <laughs> endorsing Joe Biden. Um, yeah, I, I guess maybe. I don't know. It does seem like it's pretty baked in. John, do you think there's anything that Trump could display that changes in any significant way how any significant number of people think or view him? Well, it depends whether the suburban voters need a, a permission structure to go back to Donald Trump. They've been they've been particularly suburban women have been leaving Donald Trump and some older voters in states like Florida have been leaving Donald Trump in one form or another since 2016. The, a, there are a lot of people who believe they're not going to give him a second look. And then the question is whether they don't turn out at all or whether they turn out for Biden. And the, and so I guess the question is really whether he does something that, that gives somebody who has an inclination not to go out and vote for Joe Biden to at least stay home. I don't think somebody who has since 2016 been thinking that Donald Trump is unfit for the office is suddenly going to change their mind in a debate. Or if they do, they'll probably change it back before voting time. But I could see somebody thinking, well, it's, you know, he handled himself and this, a lot of this stuff that's uh, said about him is just theater review and, you know, he's wily like a fox. And so I may not like him, but I'm, that's not going to drive me all the way to voting for Joe Biden. On the other hand, I do think that, uh, that, um, that if, if, one, if, particularly Biden, I mean, there is this question about whether the debate is a choice or a referendum. And to the extent that Joe Biden says something or does something in a moment— that kind of tease up what the question is in this debate 
which presumably would be about COVID-19. I mean, just to stop the record player here for a moment, if President Trump is reelected, he will be reelected when the majority of the country thinks he has failed on his fundamental job and that that failure has contributed in some measure to the death of, you know, by the time we get to the election, 230, 40, 50,000 Americans. And yet people will basically say the buck doesn't stop there. Let's reelect him. I mean, obviously not the whole country won't decide that. But anyway, he that will have been that will be an extraordinary thing. Um, so I think if if Biden creates a moment that tees up what the election is about and keeps it on Donald Trump, I think there is some benefit in that, because then that just keeps the turf of the fight for the final 30 some odd days on turf that's bad for President Trump. You know, and, and Emily's already sketched out how things could go very poorly for Biden. Our our smart producer, Jocelyn Frank, points out that talking about the importance of health care and protecting the Affordable Care Act right now could also matter to people. The New York Times has a couple pieces by Tom Edsel and Linda Chavez this week about the Latino vote, especially in Florida, and a feeling among some Latinos that Trump, they still see Trump as better on the economy. So anything Biden can do to change that perception seems important. I think there is sometimes a gap between the way progressives think about Latino, Latina identity as assuming that they identify as people of color, that they're part of the progressive movement. And that is true about the majority of Latinos in terms of how they vote. But it's not true about all of them. And there are some polls in Florida that suggest that Trump and Biden are close to breaking even on the Latino vote, which would be a real shift toward Trump from the 2016 election. I mean, in some ways, it's hard to understand that, given all of Trump's um, racist statements and anti-immigrant politics and policies. But that is kind of out there in a way that, um, at least in Florida, could be important. Tom Edsel's reporting has been so good this whole year. I just want to say that. Wholeheartedly endorse. Though yeah. very worrying. Very extremely worrying. <laughs> the Hispanic um, vote in Florida is kind of a special thing. Relative. I mean, it's its own special... There are like five different parts of the Hispanic community in Florida, which is sort of distinct from the Hispanic vote in the rest of the in the rest of the country. So, I mean, it's a problem for Biden. It might be, you know, if he doesn't run up the Hispanic vote success in Miami-Dade, he's um, that might be why he loses um, loses Florida. But it might it might not. We wouldn't see the we wouldn't necessarily expect to see the same response in, say, Arizona and, and North Carolina. So conceivably, Biden could do poorly with Hispanic voters in Florida and yet still win the presidency having not um, having not won uh, Florida. One last question kind of on the theater of this and not for either of you guys. So I, I'm not looking forward to watching this debate for a variety of reasons. I find it just sickly making to watch Trump these days it just makes me I don't it just makes me anxious and uh, I feel bad when I watch him. But um he is one of the things about watching him is that he's so chaotic. He doesn't really make sense most of the time. He speaks in a kind of Fox News ease. He has his own language and grammar and refers to stuff that you only know what he's talking about if you are marinated in a bath of Fox. And it's very hard to have a conversation or any kind of person-to-person encounter with someone who is as narcissistic and internal and chaotic as Trump is. And I wonder if either of you think that that is, could be dangerous for Biden. That could just be, it could just throw him off because, because there's nothing to, it's like talking to Jello or something. It's, it's not something where Biden is going to have landmarks that he can sort of stick to and, and a path to follow because 
Trump will be somewhere else entirely. Yeah, it's cr- I mean, it's uh, undoubtedly the Biden team is preparing for this and which is why these end up being basically ABC called the first Nixon Kennedy debate a joint appearance. They wouldn't call it an actual debate um, because these are essentially joint appearances. And in some ways, Biden would be smart to prepare for that and is, of course, preparing for that. I mean, basically, you can imagine that Biden is preparing to, you know, do something to maybe even grab that, David, which is to say to try to, in the first 20 minutes when all the pundits are making their judgments and tweeting about it, and that that locks in the frame for the way people will see this debate, which is one of the many ways in which they're awful, um, which is that snap judgments rule the day for the first 15 minutes, but that he would, if he was smart, find a way to frame exactly what you're talking about, David. I mean, a president's communications role is not you know, it's overplayed a lot by a lot of us, but it's not unimportant in the job. And if Biden is basically able to say, um, you know, these answers you're getting tonight are, um, you know, inconsistent with the office somehow more elegantly said than that, um, that would be interesting because it's true. And when you read some of these transcripts, um, it's, 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 it's not even it's not that he's not answering. It's not that he's talking about something else. It's that the president is not connecting ideas coherently in 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 a in any way. I just want to say before the end of this segment how distressed I am at the framing of the last two topics for this debate, race and violence in American cities. There we should not be connecting those two issues like those are two separate concerns. We should be talking about racial justice. We could, sure, we can talk about violence in American cities, but to link them is deeply unfair to the people who live in those cities. It is a bad framing. And I'm also questioning integrity in elections. Like, I mean, if Chris Wallace wants to use that to ask Donald Trump why he is uh, refusing to wholeheartedly say that he'll accept the results of the election in a peaceable transfer of power, fine. But this, if this is taking on the idea that there's some widespread reality of voter fraud when we all know that is a myth, when that has been debunked over and over again, if that's going to be presented as some like real factual possibility, that is just going to feed into Trump's deceit on this topic. I totally agree, Emily. There's there's something we'll see what the questions are. But, you you know, the debates are a chance to talk about the job and the future and the a bunch of questions. And I'm not saying that it'll go this way, but a bunch of questions about like the last news cycle um, uh, would waste the form. Two hundred thousand Americans have died from COVID-19. That is the official number. The actual number is almost certainly closer to 300,000 people who have died when you look at the excess deaths in the United States during the course of the pandemic. The virus continues to rage across the country. Nearly 1,000 people are dying every day. So that's two 9-11s every week. And meanwhile, meanwhile, there is, of course, a vaccine hunt that is going on and moving very speedily, thank goodness. But in the Trump administration, there is a, an effort to sabotage its own scientists to make the CDC into a laughing stock. And it even turns out that one of the leading conservative media critics of Tony Fauci has, in fact, been a press officer and was until this week a press officer within Fauci's own institute. So, Emily, I don't even know where to start with this. I mean, we have a we have this absolute colossal national tragedy mismanaged by the president and the people who are in the best position to fix it, not necessarily who are, you know, the 
not necessarily they're perfect or that they will always get things right. People who are in the best position to fix it at the CDC, the FDA, other parts of HHS are being actively undermined by top Trump officials. That's disturbing. Yeah, I mean, this is a um, scenario we've been worrying about for the last four years, the kind of degrading of the career professional ranks of the government, the people in the agencies who are data-driven, who do this work of trying to keep us safe, whether it's food safety at the FDA, a vaccine safety, understanding how the virus works. And to see that so undermined by politics, you know, for example, the CDC changed their guidelines on testing. They said people exposed to the virus don't necessarily need a test if they didn't have symptoms and weren't high risk. That caused a lot of alarm among public health experts because that's just not what um, they are recommending. It's full of errors. And then it was reported that this change didn't come from the CDC scientists and didn't go through the review process. It came from political appointees at the top of the Department of Health and Human Services and the White House Task Force. So the CDC had to reverse that recommendation. There was an advisory that went up this week about the virus spreading through aerosol teenier particles, that then came tumbling down. Now, it may be that there's a reason for that second withdrawal that is more neutral, but it at this point, the agency's um, trustworthiness is being so undermined, and it plays an important role in this country, but also internationally. I just find this really, really hard to grapple with, especially because there have been some wrong public health calls along the way anyway. Like, this agency was not fast enough to recommend masks. I mean, and it's hard to tell how much of that was informed by politics, honestly. I mean, one of the things that really haunted me this week was learning that we the country came close to mailing out five free masks to every American back in March. Like, that would have made such a difference if that had been a universal message. That could have saved so many lives. And so the idea that we're having this muddling that scientists within the agency are despairing about political interference, like, it just could not be more unsettling. And it also is indicative of things that are happening in other agencies, too. You also have the president undermining the use of masks in real time, or at least not lending his his oar to all of his public health officials who are trying to desperately get people to wear masks right now. I don't understand if you're obsessed with trying to restart the economy, why you wouldn't do what is the necessary precondition for getting people to stop being so risk averse, which is to basically force everyone to wear a mask constantly. It's the only way we're getting through the period between now and when there's widespread vaccination, which might not be until the middle of next year or the end of next year. And that's not just me. That's, you know, uh, Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve. That's lots and lots of economists who say that until people stop worrying about their own risk, they're not going to engage in economic activity. And the fact that there would be this undermining of the officials who who are trying desperately to tell everybody, despite, you know, some early mistakes, what like they're all supposed to do, even now this far into it, is just very vexing. Well, maybe they're not obsessed with restarting the economy in the way they should be. Is that is a possibility. I mean, the president is interested in the stock market. He's never been a person who actually has engaged in real estate is not really like the rest of the economy. I think it's kind of invisible to him. And I think also they've realized that it doesn't matter for re-election, that actually these health of the economy, people's partisan biases and the way that they people 
vote and act and behave is so deeply now connected to a sense of partisan identity for so many of the people who are likely to vote that actually it's not really important. And it and pushing people to a mask mandate, which would change, which would be a like an impingement on freedom, according to this this bogus, ridiculous sort of conservative ethos that Foxes and and OAN have pushed out. It doesn't make sense. It's a weird thing to say. Like the president basically has decided the economy is less important than some kind of culture war victory. Yeah, uh, this is re- what, the point you just made is really worth putting a underline underneath. That's why I wrote that piece about how the president has tweeted out seven, probably eight times more about the threat from mail-in ballots than he has anything about the dangers of COVID-19. You tell people to wear masks, you've just put your hands on the problem. You've just encouraged them to think you have some responsibility for it. Why make them do something that bums them out and hurts you politically? I want to talk, uh, Emily, about William Cruz, who's this press official at NIH who was, it turns out, had a secret anonymous identity or has a secret anonymous identity writing for Red State, which is a, a internet publication, which has been very critical of Tony Fauci. And so it turns out that while in his, while, you know, from nine to nine to five, uh, Cruz was helping put out uh, communications about public health and public safety at, at Fauci's agency, uh, probably also from nine to five, but also certainly from five to nine, he was anonymously savaging the scientists and government officials who are trying to control the pandemic and, and, Fauci and accusing by them name, of being, like trashing yeah. him, right? It's yes. not like, yeah. like sort of so, sober criticism. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so there's a deep state apparently. And that deep state, like the deep state is, this, is an anonymous, you know, red state bloggers who are undermining the very government they work for. Um, it is, it was, it's a very disturbing situation. Yeah, the trolls in the building, the trolls in the house. I mean, I there's so many weird things going on. The way in which you know these two political appointees, um, Scott Alexander and Michael Caputo, they've played these bit parts in the last week or so of just seeming totally partisan and not scientific in their thinking. You know, Caputo has now taken this like medical leave of absence after spreading bizarre conspiracy theories in like a live Facebook streaming. I mean, it there's just weird stuff happening. It feels like the wheels are coming off inside the government. And in some ways, early on in the Trump administration, there were still enough people and and norms in place that we didn't see this as much. It's taken a while for the more extreme folks in the administration to really come into power. Yesterday, I saw that an aide to Devin Nunes, a very right-wing congressman with his own seriously partisan record, is going to be the new inspector general for the intelligence community, the intelligence agencies. You know, this is just another step along the way, and it shows um, what's at stake in a second Trump term as opposed to um, one term. I want to end, actually, uh, John, with this strange, strange is not the right word, this uh, immoral line that seems to be coming out uh, among the president, some of his supporters, is that the deaths don't really matter. Nobody has it kids don't, kids aren't dying. And so the 200,000 people who have died, who are disproportionately elderly, disproportionately black and Hispanic, just don't really matter. That old people's deaths in particular don't matter. 
it's grotesque and immoral. Um, but it, a lot of people do think that way. Yeah, well, it's ghoulish and it's inhumane. And what's what's particularly grotesque about it to me is that in normally when somebody dies in your family, the rest of the world goes on and you can't really blame them because they don't know that your Uncle Joe just died and they didn't know him. And, and so you can kind of, it's painful, but you, you recognize that the rest of the world's indifference to your sorrow is not, it may add to your sorrow, but it's only a little bit. What The mass indifference to sorrow in a country is not only grotesque to the people who are going through it, it's grotesque to the people adjacent to them. And the blast radius of these deaths is pretty big. And and it just it it sours the entire our entire national experience to have people also who are doing this because it when it hooks up to just rank partisanship, it's basically for such small beer. In other words, you're befouling some of the most sensitive parts of the human existence basically to like own own the libs or like help your party. And and that there are not many more rungs lower on the ladder as you descend than that. And that's why it would be nice if somebody stood up and made the opposite case for our common humanity. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter at the, as this week comes to an end, I've rarely felt as much need longing for a cocktail as I do this week. So Emily I hope you're having something that's high proof, very stiff drink, enjoying maybe some beautiful New England weather and chattering about what to your loved ones. I I wish I had some relief to offer, but oh my God, there's so many things. I just feel like I can't let the show close without saying something about the failure to indict the police officers who killed Breonna Taylor in Louisville. Um, You know, a third officer, yes, was indicted for wanton endangerment because he just like fired into this building in a way that endangered Breonna Taylor's neighbors. Um, I'm not surprised by this decision because these officers argued that they were shooting in self-defense and often that justification is like wins in these situations. But the standard is a bad standard. We should not just decide that the police can make a decision to use force whenever they think that's reasonable. We should make that last resort and we should make it easier for police officers to be held accountable. That's not really very chatter-like, but I wanted to say it. There are two things that are really distressing me about the the state of Florida right now, a state that is going to matter you're doing another in this election. Wait, she, she, you just did just, like one unsettling chatter, and you're like, oh, well, let me add two more. Don't you yeah. feel like that's the way this week is? Like, there are just too many things to keep track of. So, yeah, yeah I'm going to keep going, is, which is this it. Is okay, the, no, I'm take sorry. your woe and eat <laughs> it gab fest. That, that is the way it's going to be to hang out with me this weekend. So... As some listeners know, the Florida courts have upheld a law that makes it impossible for people who were formally convicted of crimes to vote if they haven't paid off all their fines and fees. So an organization that's been working on this for years, the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, has been raising money to pay off people's fines and fees by the election. We now know that the Florida Attorney General is asking the Department of Justice to investigate this organization to see if it is legal to help people pay off their fines and fees. This is just like, 
I don't know. I just feel despairing about this. This is effectively a poll tax. These are people who want to vote. And it's actually almost, it's very difficult to even figure out how much money they owe. That's like the kind of bureaucratic snarl that the state is holding these people and their votes hostage in. Anyway, it just, I I just, it's shocking. Uh, it, It should be shocking. Was that two or one thing? We're going to add two more I'll things. I'll stop. I did have a, yet another thing, but I'll stop. <laughs> oh All the listeners are going to like write in and be like, what was that other thing, Emily? Just tell us. Come on. <laughs> okay, this is Share the horror. from you, which is that Florida is also considering passing a law that would like arrest protesters, peaceful protesters, and, you know, not protect their First Amendment rights. That is also really distressing. Florida, what is going on with you right now? God. All right. John, what's your chatter? Well, I think we're going to... Slate Plus will be important this week about what we find joy and um, and meaning in in the in times where it feels like uh, a lot of the normal things are falling away. So just for listeners, there is some hope. Um, but that's not really what my chatter about, is about. My, so my chatter is about a New York Times piece. It's called, <laughs> called The Flight That Goes Nowhere, and it's sold out. So airlines in Brunei, Taiwan, Japan, Australia are offering scenic flights that take off and then land where they started. And these are for people who apparently, because I I say apparently because I have difficulty uh, connecting with this um, spirit, but they like to just go up in plane flights no matter where they're going to. And in other words, it's all about the journey and not about the destination. And it's not just a few people who like this. When Qantas Airlines offered a trip, I think it was seven hours. It sold out in 10 minutes. It costs like anywhere between $500 and $2,500. This, I just don't understand. I also wonder, is there another human experience that has such a variance of response? So for example, if you go to the airport in the middle of the day, you will see a lot of people drinking in the middle of the day. That could be because Americans like to drink in the middle of the day. But I think some number of those people are having a few extra shots because they find flying a nervous-making experience. So the idea to them that you would just go up in a plane for the sheer hell of it really seems to me to suggest a, a, a two real uh, opposite responses in, in human behavior. And I wonder if there's anything else that excites that r- disparity. Um Anyway, I don't know. Have you heard, of, these pe- have you heard of BDSM? Well, um, no, but I get that. Those f- fetishes I can get. But in this case, I mean, do they, are these people who rent cars just for the chore of washing them? Or they hunker down in hotel rooms just so they can f- spend a few quiet hours smearing around a can of Pledge? I mean, who are these people? Also, obviously, there's an environmental uh, aspect to it, which is, you know, their carbon emissions just for the pur- purposes of basically going into a like a cul-de-sac in the air. Anyway, that's it for me. I just have to, to say that as a person who is uh, who gets nauseous on potentially any form of transportation, <laughs> on an escalator, this is totally mystifying to me. Like literally, there is nothing I like to do less than get in vehicles of any kind. <laughs> All right, my chatter is a uh, my chatter is, is on the jollier end. It's quizzical. There's a New York Times story this week, uh, which asks, "Does wearing glasses protect you from COVID?" Which I found totally exciting and intriguing as someone who wears glasses. And there is some evidence that this article cites that uh, people who wear glasses regularly have lower rates of. COVID infection than other people. And 
the data are not great. It's based on some, it seems sort of like half-assed uh, data coming out of China that wasn't, it wasn't really a systematic study. It was more just like a note, noting of the phenomenon that few people with glasses seem to be coming into hospitals. But there's theory that maybe it's like protecting the two a couple main theories that it's a barrier that you there is actually some transmission that's happening because particles are getting in people's eyes and the glasses just simply act as a barrier protecting against those particles. Makes sense. M- makes sense. And the other one is that people who wear glasses possibly just rub their eyes and their face less than other people because um, because they just have a thing on their face that is protecting them, preventing them from rubbing their eyes. Also uh, makes sense. Also makes sense. So, like, nice to know. I, I feel protected. I'm now uh, just going to go to movie theaters and eat inside and dine inside in restaurants and crowded no, restaurants and not. go to bars. No, I, I'm not going to do that. Um, listeners, you have also sent us a lot of good chatters. Oh, my God, week. they're so good. Whoa, I like the, the Greek chorus aspect there, well, John. No, I just, I looked I at like them this week. you're backing me up in church here. Yeah, no, I just looked at them this week and I was Amen. like, oh, because there was a period where, let's be let's be honest, the, the I mean, long ago, long ago, there was a period where it was like onesies and twosies. This time I was like, how, it doesn't stop. And each one of them was great. Um, they're all in yes. the weekend reading pile. Yes. So the one that uh, I will point people to is one from Katerina Berry. And Katerina Berry points us to a story from Food and Wine about the plague wine windows of Italy. And so they're in in Italy, but particularly in Florence, there's something called Bucchetti del Vino, which helped people through plague pandemics in the 17th century. And what they were is they were sort of a secret door behind which was a a facility, maybe a a wine shop or, or some kind of shop that had some kind of facility that had wine and they would turn the door and there would be a bottle of wine or a glass of wine for people um, because you couldn't have face-to-face transaction. And, and so they have become repurposed. Some of there are about 250 that still remain. They've been repurposed and some people are using them to provide gelato and coffee and alcohol, but maintaining social distancing. So it's uh, it's very nice little story. It's comforting. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap, Gabriel Roth, June Thomas, and Alicia Montgomery are the top-tier editorial team in charge of podcasting at Slate. You should follow us on Twitter at at SlateGabfest, and please tweet chatter to us at SlateGabfest. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Hopefully, it'll be a happier week next week. Hello, Slate Plus. Woof. How are you? John. I think it was jo- John. John had the nice idea. Was it John? Yes. No. It was Emily. John, yes. Me. John, Emily. But John, you'd emailed about this earlier in the week, and then Emily sort of repurposed it into a Slate Plus topic. Anyway, the we'll Slate Plus... co-credit. Co-credit. <laughs> Slate Plus topic is how, in a time that is so unnerving, so worrisome, there's so much tragedy in the world, so much danger, so much anticipatory... Uh, thought of things that could terrible things that could happen so much risk to the country how do we find calm and solace uh and maybe we have recommendations for other people so um anyone either of you want to start i could start so i found um the jewish high holidays to be very well timed this week because they are timeless like there you are praying these words 
The liturgy is hundreds of years old. The Torah is thousands of years old. People have been saying these things, expressing this faith, going through these moves for so many years in so many worse, much more dire circumstances than the ones we currently find ourselves in. I found that really comforting, just that feeling of being connected on a chain of human endeavor that stretches back so far in time. I've, I find the same to be true. I was actually reading a, um, a book of sermons by, I, I interrupted my normal reading of Thomas Merton, who um, uh, serves this purpose for me, and has during um, my uh, period of uh, anxiety and um, and woe, which really for me started about fifty two years ago. Um, On I, your birth, um, you yeah. appeared with a furrowed brow. There you go. So, so anyway, I was the, I was already working on this project before the pandemic hit. But the um, I, I Fosdick sermons were during the Second World War, and it's amazing how many of those sermons are about basically experiences we're all having in this moment. And his argument, which you find in lots of other different places, is that hope in a time of challenge is actually a blessing in a way to be to be confronted with because it deepens your faith, it focuses your life on what has meaning, and then your the opportunity it gives you, and, and I think this is true about leaders and presidents too, which is adversity is a chance for you to be a hero, a great leader, like you should run to the sound of the of the challenge, which is why it's been so um, curious to see the president's response to this. Fosdick's argument is basically it's a great time to be alive because you have a chance to leave indelible marks and and, and achieve greatness in in his argument is through the hope and kind of living uh, based on the Christian principles. So that has all been very interesting to read. Also, other things that give me meaning, n- spending time away from the news cycle um, and with art. The Met just reopened, and um, we spent an hour only because it was closing, but just in the presence of art, um, poetry, and music, and the free association that it that it creates, which for me is that it creates thoughts in my head that I had, didn't see coming, recollections that I don't, rem, you know, that are completely surprising. Being bombarded with surprising thoughts of beauty and surprising emotions, even if they're uh, sad ones from certain kinds of writing and poetry, is is nice because you're often bombarded with things in the news cycle in part because, well, anyway, I won't, anyway, it's just nice to be bombarded with something else. And, uh, and lots of art has been doing that for me recently. I'm a really much shallower person than you guys. And I'm also not a religious person. So I think, uh, one of the things that I've come to realize about myself is I'm a very somatic person in the sense that like my body and my physical expression is strongly correlates to how I find comfort and happiness. Like I use my body and motion in particular to, to change my mood and whether it's walking through a landscape, whether it's intense physical exercise, whether it is like a particular rest at particular after exhausting myself, those are the ways that, that really bring me calm and solace. So for me, it's like actually movement has been essential. Like that's where I find contemplative times that's where i find happiness that's where i am like 
refresh. I start every day by moving around intensely just because it's just like, otherwise I am agitated through the day. So that's number one. There's also this way in which there's been so much chaos and tumult in my life recently that uh, in my extended family that I haven't actually thought it's I was I was talking about this with a friend. Like, I can't tell whether having tumult in one's life makes you like just pay more attention to the be more affected by the tumult of the world or less affected. And I feel in my case, it's less affected. I just like I become very self-centered and think about myself. And that allows me to distract myself from the world by thinking about my own problems um and then which are m- minor compared to the world i should note and then um and then finally just a really trivial thing for me is i watch a lot of golf which is a shameful thing to admit especially really on like podcast. on television that yeah. is the most boring thing i've never done that for more than 30 seconds i love watching i love that? watching golf on television Wait i watch a, a lot of soccer too but soccer? i watch a lot of okay. golf golf like what does it even mean to watch golf that was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.